Xtalks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This life science-focused podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we are discussing the theme of this year's Rare Disease Day, Share Your Colors, and Why People of Color Remain Underrepresented in Clinical Trials. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the X-Talks Life Science Podcast. I'm Aisha Rashid, Senior Life Science Journalist at xtalks.com. And this week, I'm joined by Sydney Perlmutter and Vera Kovacevich. Thanks for coming today. This week's podcast features Rare Disease Day and is sponsored by Elego Health Research. Stay tuned to learn more about Elego later in the show. I'm going to start us off with the story, of course, about Rare Disease Day, which was on February the 28th. And so Rare Disease Day is celebrated annually on the 28th or the 29th of February in leap years. And that's because it's the rarest day of the year. Now, Rare Disease Day is a global movement that is committed to fostering equity in terms of access to diagnosis, care, and therapies for rare diseases, as well as social opportunity for individuals with rare diseases. The theme of this year's Rare Disease Day is share your colors, and this is a call to shine a light on people with rare diseases to really hear about their stories, experiences, and goals and aspirations. So rarediseaseday.org is kind of the curator of this whole movement, and in this year's 2022 video about sharing your colors, Uh, Patients in the video are seen from all around the world uh, sharing their stories in their native languages about how it is living with rare diseases. And the the patients and individuals in the video um, have rare diseases ranging from uh, conditions like Duchenne muscular dystrophy to cystic fibrosis and Gaucher's disease, among others. And really this year, uh, with the whole sharing your colors theme, um, it was a united call uh, and action, call for action, I'm sorry, for patients, families, uh, patient caregivers, healthcare providers, researchers, industry partners, governments, as well as local and global communities to really come together to help raise awareness about rare diseases and break down barriers to care, diagnosis, and treatment. And the people featured in the video Uh, also demand greater equity and inclusion. And they say that they're showing the world what they're capable of, no matter the challenges that they face. Now, I did a piece about uh, Rare Disease Day, and in that I wanted to kind of share some information and some facts about rare diseases. Um, And I also went into rare disease clinical trials and also talking a bit about orphan drugs. Now, first of all, and first first and foremost, actually, uh, how is a rare disease defined? So a rare disease is classified based on its prevalence in a given population. And now these definitions can actually vary between countries and regions. So, for example, in the U.S., a rare disease is defined as a condition that affects less than 1 in 200,000 individuals. 
On the other hand, in the UK, it's defined as a condition that affects fewer than 1 in 2,000 people. Now, according to the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, there are over 7,000 rare diseases known. So of these rare diseases, how many people suffer from rare diseases around the world? The total tally is 300 million. So globally, we have uh, probably just over 300 million actually that suffer from a rare disease. In the U.S. alone, 25 to 30 million individuals, or 1 in 10, are living with a rare disease. So they're not as rare, dare I say, um, as I guess previously thought. I mean, you, you know, 1 in 10 is a pretty significant number, and I think I was coming across like a sort of statistic and analogy that if you're in an elevator with 10 people, uh, one of them will have a rare disease. Now, are most rare diseases genetic? I think this is kind of, you know, a common, um, you know, perception, but it's actually, um, you know, kind of a mis uh, misconception because while 72% of rare diseases are genetic, not all rare diseases are. So rare genetic diseases can, of course, be caused by either somatic or germline uh, genetic changes. And the germline changes, of course, are... Um, can be passed on to subsequent generations. For example, some rare cancers, uh, autoimmune diseases, as well as infections are hereditary. The exact causes of many rare diseases unfortunately remains unknown. And so that's why it's uh, difficult to try to, to sometimes um, diagnose uh, and find treatments for these diseases. Now, some other facts about rare diseases, which are the rarest. Now, I kind of put together a list of, uh, you know, some of the most rare diseases in the world, along with their uh, prevalence um, in the general population. So, the, the rarest disease in the world that's so far known is called ribose-5-phosphate isomerase, or RPI, deficiency. And this has a prevalence of less than 1 in 1 million. Other um, very rare diseases include Hutchinson Guilford Progeria syndrome, or HGPS, which has a prevalence of 1 in 4 million. And then there is also Alice in Wonderland syn uh, syndrome, as well as uh, Stoneman syndrome, and that has a frequency of 1 in 2 million. So again, you're getting down to really, really um, small numbers when we're talking about, you know, 1 in a million. That's... Uh, definitely uh, challenging to, to work with. If you, if you think about, you know, clinical trials, um, trying to uh, evaluate treatments for um, these kinds of rare diseases and to really sort of recruit patient populations. So that's a very common and very uh, difficult kind of a challenge there. Um, now let's talk about, I guess, what the most common rare disease is. Um, do you guys kind of have any idea of what might be a rare disease that's considered a rare disease, but that's more common than you might think? And if you haven't read my piece, <laughs> hopefully. Is, is multiple sclerosis one of them? Because I have a family member with oh, that. Oh, yep. You're absolutely right, actually. Yep. Okay, you have a family. Yeah, yeah so that's why I thought of that one. Um, other than yep. that, I don't really know, but... 
Uh, are they saying, are some autoimmune diseases considered rare? Yes, yeah, some are other considered ones? rare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are some other autoimmune diseases that are pretty rare. But yeah, uh, MS is uh, definitely classified as one of the more common rare diseases. It's kind of an oxymoron there. Um, and the frequency of MS is 58 to 95 per 100,000. Uh, and this is in the U.S., um, so some other common rare diseases include cystic fibrosis, uh, narcolepsy, Fabry disease, as well as primary biliary cholangitis, which is a liver condition. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we do have rare diseases out there that are more prevalent than others, and, and, and MS definitely um, is on that list as being the most common in addition, um, I, I kind of alluded towards, you know, some of the challenges of conducting rare disease clinical trials, um, and there are a number of them, and one of them, as I mentioned, was um, just having small patient populations, and because of that, there's often a need to conduct multi-center out-of-country studies due to these low patient numbers, so just to, to accrue you know, more patients, you will, you often will have to go out of country and conduct multi-site studies. In addition, uh, there's often, you know, a high burden on patients and their caregivers. For example, uh, I mean, accessing trial sites that might be um, at a significant distance from their homes. And so that can add to, you know, if uh, the individual is suffering from some physical impairments or even some mental impairments that may render them re- render it difficult for them to um, physically go over to a clinical trial site. And there may be a host of other uh, complications as well uh, when it comes to rare diseases. So that can place a really high burden on patients and caregivers. And so in this respect, um, you know, new innovative models um, like decentralized and hybrid clinical trial models can really help reduce such burdens. And we did see during the pandemic the implementation of these kinds of um, newer models, and not only were they able to help address some of the challenges associated with the pandemic in terms of mobility and access, but we see that it can translate over to other just to be implemented in, you know, a lot of disease areas moving forward, even out of the pandemic, to improve accessibility and in turn improve inclusion, especially for rare disease populations. Another significant challenge uh, with rare disease clinical trials and developing treatments for rare diseases is the high costs that are associated with the R&D of rare disease therapeutics. Um, An interesting you know, kind of fact I came across was that almost 60% of approved drugs for rare diseases are biologics. And biologics are quite expensive uh, to develop because they're more more complex than um, pharmaceutical drugs like small molecule inhibitors and such. In addition, um, procuring procuring enough drug for use in trials um, can also be a challenge due to supply issues. Uh, and things like that. So there are, you know, a number of different challenges um, associated with rare disease clinical trials. So um, uh, a lot of factors to consider. Another area um, 
that I'd like to kind of talk about is uh, orphan drugs and also why do they cost so much? I think in, you know, the recent, in the past year, we saw a couple of approvals for, you know, gene therapies that were in the range of a uh, million to two million dollars. Uh, Liv Melty um, comes to mind that was recently approved in the UK as well as um, a gene therapy for SMA. So an orphan drug is basically, first of all, a pharmaceutical or biological that's used for the treatment of a rare disease. Um, and it's produced with financial assistance from governments as well as industry partners because of the high costs that are associated with orphan drugs. According to the FDA definition of an orphan drug, it's one that is intended for the treatment, prevention, or diagnosis of a rare disease or condition, or that meets cost recovery provisions of the act. Now, a disease for which an orphan drug is indicated is called an orphan disease. The FDA approved 32 different orphan drugs in 2020 alone. And uh, the National Organization for Rare Disorders, or NORD, NORD, released um, results from a study last year, which actually revealed that the FDA has approved 599 orphan drugs since the Orphan Drug Act became law in 1983. Now, the Orphan Drug Act was introduced to help the development of orphan drugs and bring them to market for rare disease indications. Uh, by providing incentives like, for example, a 25% credit on R&D, as well as waiving user fees on application submissions to the FDA. This report also found that 75% of all orphan drugs are only approved for the treatment of one disease. Uh, so you're not talking about repurposing a lot of drugs for different disease indications. And this highlights really the importance of the Orphan Drug Act in bringing new orphan drugs for the treatment of rare diseases to market. Another study showed that the number of orphan drug designa designations increased fourfold between the 1990s and 2010s with uh, significant increases, particularly in the proportion of drugs for oncology indications, pediatric onset diseases, and neurological disorder disorders. So on Rare Disease Day 2022 this year, again, um, you know, with the Sharing Your Colors campaign, uh, people, you know, were encouraged, uh, as I mentioned, to share their colors by sharing their experiences and stories as patients, families, caregivers, healthcare providers, researchers, community members, on social media platforms and in other spheres as well. Also by lighting buildings, monuments and homes, and by also reaching out to policymakers to really help raise awareness about individuals living with rare diseases and to continue um, really the push towards uh, rare disease clinical research so that uh, we can really know, develop treatments to help a lot of individuals out there with rare diseases. And the people in the Rare Disease Day 2022 campaign in that video I mentioned, which I think everyone should really check out. It's really touching and it's a really beautiful video. Um, uh, so in that, they end off saying that with 300 million stories, together we can paint a picture of a brighter future in our colors, in our voices. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on Rare Disease Day. And um, I know, Vera, you mentioned that you have someone in your family that suffers from MS. 
So, you know, I was, were you guys kind of surprised by that statistics that one in 10 Americans um, has a rare disease or? I don't know if it's surprising to me or if I'm desensitized by it because this this whole thing really hit home for me because I have a very rare disease um, in my family. My mom had um, Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease and she had the um, hereditary version of it. So the regular sporadic version um, affects one in one million uh, worldwide and then 10 to 15% of those cases are hereditary. So it's even less than that. Um, so her case was extremely rare and I, I thought that, you know, now it, like in this day and age is probably, um, where we find so much community via like social media, um, and, and groups and, and things like that, which make them feel a lot less rare to me. Um, my dad and I had joined like a Facebook group a while back and it was such a great community just to learn about, you know, how other people are, uh, you know, being caregivers and symptoms and things like that. So even though it is extremely rare, they feel so much less rare when you have like that sense of community. Um, but yeah, I think I was a little bit surprised to hear about MS being one, um, just because it seems so much more prevalent, um, you know, but I guess there's always going to be some that are more prevalent than, than others and some that have more treatments than others and, and things like that. But um, I'm definitely going to check out that video because that sounds, that sounds really great. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was also surprised it was one in 10, um, around one in 10 people, to be honest. Um, but I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, I heard that rare diseases are difficult to diagnose. So for some of these people, it could take years to obtain an accurate diagnosis, which I think um, is also an area that should be, you know, more researched about and... Um, because usually time is very important for people who have a rare disease. So if they can get the right treatment, it could slow down um, the development of this disease, hopefully. So yes, I also am hopeful for the future that it will also take um, people less time to reach an accurate diagnosis for their rare disease condition. Yeah, it's a really great point because, you know, a lot of diseases are treatable, of course, in early stages, so it's really important to have those early diagnoses, but uh, with a lot of rare diseases, that's that's uh, kind of difficult because, you know, if I'm thinking back to some of the rare diseases that I've written about, a lot of the symptoms can kind of be vague, like, uh, um, you know, muscular dystrophies, or, I mean, again, depends on the severity, right, of course, but, um, you know, just things like... Feeling tired. You know, feeling tired, mm -hmm. fatigue, you know, attention deficits and things like that. Um, so I think, you know, that makes it quite challenging to, to really get those early diagnoses, which is really unfortunate. And, and this is a, a very big area of research, actually, in rare diseases um, to try to really look at, let's say, biomarkers that may be able to help in the early diagnosis of, uh, of diseases um, so that patients can get access to treatments and um, have better outcomes, essentially. So, uh, yeah, that's that's a big, big part of rare disease sort of um, research, definitely. And Sydney, you know, you're absolutely right that just by having these kinds of patient communities, advocacy groups, um, it, 
I can just imagine how, you know, isolating it is to have, I mean, it's isolating to, to be sick, you know, even when you come down with something like the flu, I mean, you know, this is a terrible analogy, but you know, it's isolating to be sick and then to be suffering from some kind of, you know, um, a disease or a more, you know, long-term condition. I, I can only imagine how incredibly isolating that is. So just to have these kinds of communities and associations out there, um, to, to bring people together so that they can share their stories and experiences, I think is fantastic. And we've been seeing um, these kinds of movements and organizations, associations growing a lot in the past, you know, in recent years, which is really great to see. And then in that video, you know, everyone's coming together. So it's really like, you know, you're not alone, you know, the support is there. And, and I think even as people, you know, like myself who, know, haven't been affected by a rare disease, but just seeing these kinds of associations, it makes me want to reach out to support, you know, in whatever way I can as well. So just imagine like if everyone globally would be able to really participate in these kinds of campaigns. And I think that's really, really awesome um, that we're seeing more and more of these kinds of support groups, which is so, so important. Let's take a break to hear more about our sponsor this week, Elego. Every patient living with a rare disease is just as extraordinary as their condition. As such, they deserve compassionate care rooted in what they truly need. Elego Health Research compassionately engages with rare disease patients and their families, healthcare communities, and sponsors to build and support innovative clinical trial programs that put the patient first. Elego's access to patients and their healthcare data, as well as its commitment to understanding patient stories, accelerates and improves the trial process for better feasibility, enhanced protocols, and increased patient engagement and retention. By maintaining the trusted relationship between patients and their physicians and promoting clinical research as a care option, Elego empowers patients to take control over their healthcare journey. Rare disease requires extraordinary care. When you want to accelerate and improve your rare disease research for the benefit of patients, there's only Elego. Visit elegodirect.com today to learn more. All right, I'm going to move on to the other story that I have lined up for today. And this is um, also pertaining to the month of February. I know we're into March, but we recorded this uh, when we were still at the brink of uh, making it into March and still in February. So Black History Month, um, February was Black History Month, of course. And I wanted to talk about some relevant topics in the life sciences space. And uh, the topic that I kind of uh, looked at was, you know, why black people remain underrepresented in clinical trials. So although there has been increasing awareness around the need for improving inclusion and diversity in clinical trials, there's um, still scope for things to be better. And uh, there has been growing emphasis on efforts to achieve better and more accurate representations of minority and underrepresented populations like black people in clinical studies. Of course, healthcare system inequities um, that black communities in North America continue to face have a long history that uh, is rooted in socioeconomic disparities, and this is spread, of course, from centuries of systemic racism and disenfranchisement. And black people continue to face generational disenfranchisement in healthcare systems and medical research as well. 
This is especially concerning because black people have a high risk of serious but often treatable and manageable diseases like um, chronic diseases like diabetes and hypertension. They're also at a high risk of developing heart disease and stroke. So according to the statistics, diabetes is 60% more prevalent among black people than white people. In addition to this, black individuals have a 5.6 times greater risk of developing kidney disease and are 2.3 times more likely to undergo a limb amputation associated with diabetes complications compared with other individuals. Compared to white people, they're also more likely to develop hypertension earlier in life. Now, despite these, you know, Statistics in the U.S., black people only constitute 5% of all clinical trial participants. And, of course, the overwhelming majority of trial participants nationwide are white. According to a drug trials report from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, of the 32,000 participants in trials that supported the approval of 53 drugs by the agency's Center for Drug Evaluation and Research. In 2020, only 8% of the participants were black and 75% were white. And black people were only second to Asians with respect to lowest trial representation. Now, black populations um, continue to be underrepresented in clinical trials due to a number of different reasons. And these include mistrust of medical and scientific communities, um, a lack of access to health care, cultural barriers, a lack of health education, as well as failure of health care providers to adequately, to adequately engage and educate patients about trials, um, and also investigators failing to actively recruit Black participants in uh, clinical studies. Of course, the underrepresentation in clinical trials is a part and parcel of the healthcare inequities that Black people continue to face in the U.S. and in other places as well. Um, and representation in clinical trials that truly reflects and matches disease statistics, as I outlined um, those statistics about how Black people are more prone to certain diseases, I think that really needs to um, improve because you know, if we really want to help um, improve health outcomes for Black communities, it's going to be really important to have that representation in clinical trials um, uh, for improving those outcomes. Now, increasing Black research participation is dependent on the concerted efforts, again, of investigators, trial sponsors, healthcare providers, patients, patient caregivers, patient advocacy groups, community groups, academic centers, and industry partners alike. Now, medical mistrust is one of the major contributing uh, factors to health disparities among Black communities in North America. And a recent study um, showed that mistrust of healthcare systems was the primary barrier to, to participation in medical research among African-American adults. And of course, this mistrust stems from both historic and continuing events in healthcare uh, related to issues of racial and socioeconomic discrimination. And we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic the inherent distrust that many Black Americans uh, hold for healthcare systems, not only, you know, 
were responsible for lower rates of vaccination among black people, but also a greater uh, hesitation in accessing and seeking medical uh, care if they got COVID compared with other ethnic groups. And of course, this medical mistrust uh, has developed over centuries of not just racial, you know, discrimination and segregation, but active medical abuse and exploitation. You know, a very infamous example of this uh, was the Tuskegee syphilis study, which was conducted among black men who were denied treatment for syphilis in order to test new drugs for the disease, um, as well as the 1920s Mississippi appendectomy, which involved the forced sterilization of uh, poor black women without their knowledge under the guise of uh, appendectomies. And this was essentially hysterectomy training for young doctors. So these examples of medical abuse and um, blatant exploitation um, continue to really serve as a harrowing reminder of the relationship between Black people and America's medical systems. Um, I think, you know, on this show, we also talked about the case of Henrietta Lacks, uh, who was an African-American woman whose uh, cervical tissues were taken without her knowledge. Again, issues of consent at play here uh, when she was being treated for cervical cancer at Johns Hopkins in the early 1950s. And so her samples were used to develop the widely used HeLa cell line. And currently members of the Lacks family are fighting legal battles against companies like Thermo Fisher Scientific over commercial rights to the cells. So these types of past events still shape a large part of the medical experience and the medical memory for Black people in America. And with uh, racial discrimination still, you know, rampant in the U.S. healthcare systems, along with significant barriers to access, that experience has not improved by a whole lot. So it's going to be really important to gain that trust. Um, you know, we cannot even say that to regain trust because that trust was never there. Um, so that's going to be a big part of trying to really bring people, bring black people into the fold of medical research uh, that will benefit them. Um, and this kind of plays into race-based medicine, which is kind of controversial, I think, um, because although we know that ethnicity can be a significant medical determinant with respect to predisposition to certain diseases, um, the links between race-based genetics and disease are not quite clear. So for example, um, although rates of asthma and asthma-related deaths are higher among black people than white people, um, you also have to take into consideration the fact that 71% um, uh, of African Americans and 58% of white Americans live in communities that violate federal air pollution standards. So um, more black people live in and around areas that have bad air quality. And so that may be a reason, a socioeconomic reason, as to why we see higher levels of asthma, as well as things like uh, lung cancer among black uh, men. However, there are some other instances that are, uh, you know, more clear on the racial determinants, uh, determinants of disease. For example, conditions like sickle cell disease and sickle cell trait, um, which it affects about, uh, you know, 100,000 people in the U.S., but one in 365 black uh, babies are born with uh, sickle cell disease and one in 13 babies with sickle cell traits. So it's uh, definitely higher in prevalence among black uh, populations. And this is because um, uh, 
they're, the, the disease causing mutation um, is actually protective against severe forms of malaria. So that's why it's thought that this particular mutation was able to, um, you know, kind of survive and, and perpetuate um, in people of African origin because malaria, of course, is common in places uh, like Africa. So in instances like this, it's really important then to um, personalize, uh, you know, in, in, in the context of personalized medicine to really develop targeted therapies, for example, um, that are specific to a certain demographic, a certain ethnic group that is more prone to, to a certain disease and where genetics may play a role. Uh, so for example, targeted therapies are designed against specific disease-causing uh, molecular markers such as genetic mutations. And these markers may not only drive or help to identify disease, but they can also help uh, predict response to therapy, among other things. Um, in addition, you know, a lot of these molecular markers, uh, such as gene mutations, can be used to help stratify patients into different subgroups and then tailor therapies based on those molecular or those cellular um, profiles. So again, this approach, of course, necessitates a representation of a spectrum of populations in clinical studies in order to identify those subgroups that have specific um, mutations, for example. And so that information, because that, then that information is used to personalize treatments, develop um, targeted therapies um, with the goal of administering those that work best for a given patient or patient population. So if you're excluding minority groups like black people in clinical trials, that can potentially preclude them from benefiting from innovative new treatments. Um, and a recent study showed that black patients may, made up less than 4% of uh, participants across several several trials evaluating immune checkpoint inhibitors approved for the treatment of lung cancer. So the uh, underrepresentation of black individuals is particularly uh, concerning in um, and glaring in oncology trials, and this is especially concerning because black uh, people. Black Americans have a 28% higher cancer-related mortality compared with white people. And at Xtalks, we've actually hosted a couple of webinars. I think the one that comes to mind, which I think I've spoken about before too, um, was about the underrepresentation of Black women in breast cancer trials. And in that webinar, you know, it was um, a lot of interesting statistics, concerning statistics. For example, black women account for 12% of new breast cancer cases in the study in the U.S., but they only comprised 3% of all participants in breast cancer clinical trials that supported FDA drug approvals between 2008 and uh, 2018. So again, there's, you know, a significant discrepancy here in terms of, you know, the patient populations that are you know, perhaps overrepresented or significantly represented in, ter in terms of acquiring disease versus testing therapies for those diseases. So there's, there's a significant gap there. Uh, and um, there are, you know, a number of barriers to access to active trial participation. And these can include things like I mentioned, um, cultural barriers, educational and socioeconomic barriers, as well as poor outreach overall to black communities. Um, and I think this, you know, the latter really falls on 
both primary healthcare providers as well as researchers, um, investigators, trial sponsors, to really improve communication and engagement um, to really, you know, uh, improve that outreach to Black communities to ensure that um, they're participating in trials that will ultimately benefit them in terms of treatments. Socioeconomic barriers, of course, can prevent people from accessing health care as well as trials because, you know, a lot of people may not have paid time off for medical appointments, and there are also time and costs involved. Um, for example, tr you know, getting to clinics and things like that. So that can be a significant barrier for a lot of uh, people in these communities. Uh, also education. Um, I think both, you know, from the patient standpoint as well as healthcare providers, investigators have a, a responsibility to really educate their patients on, on clinical trials, which, um, you know, I've come, I've come across a lot of surveys and studies which show that black patients just aren't engaged in the same way by their healthcare providers in terms of being informed about clinical studies and what studies are out there in which they, you know, should participate in and such compared to other uh, ethnic communities. And as well as in black communities, I think health education is kind of lacking. Um, you hear about cases and, and things, anecdotal, you know, stories from people. Um, I think Mary J. Blige, I covered a story recently who's, you know, participating in campaigns to help increase awareness about the importance of early breast cancer screening. So she was saying how, you know, things like cancer are just aren't discussed in black families like her. So when I think two of her aunts, um, or an aunt of hers and another family member got breast cancer. It came as a shock because this wasn't something that they talk about much less, you know, so they didn't know how to really deal with it. So I think, you know, this really speaks to education, you know, being a critical component of all of this. So what are the steps and solutions? We've talked a lot about the problems, you know. Um, improving research participation among black communities is one of the keys to helping eradicate healthcare disparities and ultimately improving healthcare and health outcomes for black patients. Uh, there are several ways that patients, investigators, trial sponsors, healthcare providers, patients, and patient advocacy groups can help increase uh, awareness about the importance of trial participation. Community level outreach is an effective way to begin conversations about uh, research trials. I came across a recent report that was published in The Lancet that showed that, you know, adapting really kind of a, gra a grassroots level community engagement model um, allowed, you know, a greater outreach to Black communities. And this involves partnerships, you know, multi-directional partnerships between academic centers, um, governments, industry partners, and the community. Um, that um, were being targeted. So this can really, this multifaceted kind of an approach where you're, you're engaging, you know, different players um, really is important and was shown to be beneficial in bringing information about research trials uh, to people directly. So really going out there, having everybody on board and doing this kind of outreach um, is really important. And I think in the model, they administered, you know, things like webinar series and also provided cult uh, culturally sensitive educational materials on improving health equity through diversity um, by enhancing representation of racial and minority ethnic groups in clinical trials. So really educating people 
about the importance of trial participation um, in a really direct way um, through community outreach is a great way to uh, to begin. Um, also, the use of different trial models, for example, hybrid and decentralized cl uh, clinical trial models um, were a success during the pandemic, of course, as we've talked a lot about, but they, you know, uh, across the board, they allow for significant flexibility and accessibility. So if we can adapt some of these models and implement them for uh, populations like, like Black people to help improve accessibility, I think that's also um, a great way to um, enhance and improve um, trial accessibility and participation. And of course, uh, this all begins with communication and I think um, medical and scientific community, communities really have um, a lot to contend with and really have to gain the medical trust of black communities to, to help increase trial participation among uh, black people. So fostering inclusive communication, acknowledging past traumas, as well as eradicating systemic discrimination are key to paving the path forward in increasing clinical trial representation. So I know there were a lot of statistics there. Um, does it surprise you that, you know, sort of trial participation among Black people is so, so poor? Given everything that you've mentioned, um, no, it doesn't really surprise me. Um, the mistrust for generations is, is something that's hard to shake. And um, yeah, like this, this, that's why it doesn't really surprise me. And I think maybe it would be, um, there would be more incentives if, if, uh, more people of color saw people like them, um, you know, running these clinical trials and, and could find trust in, in that sense too. Yeah. yeah. That's another great point I forgot to mention, um, you know, I, I think I also read about like stories from people like black people walking into medical centers and just seeing a doctor. And, you know, once I think there was this one guy, he went in, saw a black doctor and was like, wait, I, I didn't, ex I wouldn't expect to see someone like you here, you know, like, and the, the doctor was like, why? Like, why is that the case that, you know, so it's kind of unfortunate that um, you don't have, I, I guess, a lot of representation on that front either in terms of uh, the healthcare providers and researchers um, from the black community. But that definitely helps that, you know, having someone there that looks like you, that has, you know, perhaps had the same experiences as you, um, people will listen and, you know, connect to them more so than, let's say, uh, someone from other communities. So that's also an important component for sure. Yeah, I, 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 I really think that, you know, underrepresentation of black people and other minority, you know, ethnic groups in clinical trials, ultimately, this underrepresentation is really harmful, um, both in the short term and the long term. And we really, you know, need to find more solutions um, to increase diversity in clinical trials. And I really think clinical research organizations are now paying more attention to that. Um, you know, just in our field of work, we, we frequently go on their websites and I've really noticed that they're paying attention to diversity and they're saying, you know, oh, clinical trials organized by us, for example, they have, um, we have an increased level of patient diversity and things like that. So it's, I can see that in the industry now, it's, 
really something that they're starting to focus on. Whereas in the past, I, I don't think it was um, a factor that was really considered. So I was glad just going on websites, you know, in industry, I'm really seeing that they're paying special attention to this. And, you know, other solutions, like you mentioned, like, you know, increasing access to clinical trials or, or even providing more of a financial support or a transportation support. I think they're all really great solutions to, um, you know, solve this problem, hopefully sooner rather than later. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, how you were saying, Vera, that in the in industry, we're really seeing sort of, um, you know, more programs geared towards fostering inclusion and diversity of uh, diverse patient populations. So that's that's very encouraging to see that, you know, because things always start with identifying the problem and, you know, having an awareness of that. So, and, you know, just taking, and then that and then the concrete steps to sort of address those issues follow that. So it's 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 very 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 encouraging to see industry um, acknowledging and having that awareness and really taking steps to improve diversity in trials. Um, and hopefully, you know, uh, especially for Black populations, because they're kind of like, I mean, this is not to say you know you have Indigenous groups, you have Hispanics in in, in the U.S. Um, these are all very prominent minority groups that are also underrepresented in, in trials. But, you know, um, I, I guess the history of Black America in and itself is, is, is very um, unique and has a very long history of that medical mistrust. So I think, you know, specifically focusing on the needs of specific communities, whether it's the Black community or the Indigenous community, um, is going to be very important uh, moving forward. So having those culturally sensitive materials and to really cater to each group um, based on their needs is going to be important. All right, that's the end of this episode of the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you liked today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you everyone for coming and see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find Xtalks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalks.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.